Welcome to this week's Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Last week, we talked about receiving new life and how we're called to be ambassadors of Christ's hope to a broken world. But to fully live this new life of purpose, we must embrace the life of faithfulness, connected to the will of the Father and directed by the Holy Spirit. This week, Associate Care Pastor Josh Masters continues the series, Sufficiency in Christ. Today's episode, Faithfulness. If you want to watch a video of this week's message, listen to worship, or search through our message archives, visit brookwoodchurch.org slash watch or download the Brookwood Church app. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date with the Sufficiency in Christ series. We pray this message encourages you and your walk with Christ. And now, Josh Masters. How many people in this room right now need the peace of God? Yeah. How many of us feel like the world is pressing in on us? Well, you know, God promises that we can have peace in every circumstance because he is for us, not against us. Amen? You know, last week we talked about receiving new life. And that those who belong to Christ become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. And we also talked about last week about how in that new life, we are called to be Christ's ambassadors to a broken world. Perry shared this verse with us last week. God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for God, for Christ, when we plead, come back to God. But in in order for us to fulfill and fully live this new life of purpose in Christ, we have to embrace a life of faithfulness. Connected to the will of the Father and directed through the power of the Holy Spirit. Purpose in Christ, the will of the Father, directed by the Spirit. We can't be an ambassador of God or for God if we are not connected in relationship to the Father. We can't reflect the power of God if we ourselves are not empowered and directed by the Holy Spirit. And we cannot share the hope of Jesus Christ if we're not experiencing daily the hope of Jesus Christ. So we grow deeper in that relationship with God by seeking a life of faithfulness. But what does that really mean? What does a life of faithfulness look like? We'll explore that together today as we continue our series on 2 Corinthians. So you can go ahead in your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. That's where we left off last week. It's on page 932 if you're using the Bible available here at Brookwood. And after, in the passages that we looked at last time, Paul describes the incredible promises and the mission that God has for us. Now in this next session, Paul moves on to describe our part. It's God's promises and God's plan and God's purpose, but we do have a part. 
What does it take to live a life of faithfulness? What does our attitude need to look like? What do our priorities need to be? Now, some of what we're going to read today is very difficult. It's extremely challenging. I think Perry is giving me those passages on purpose to see what I do. No, but some of it's very challenging. And you may think as we walk through these verses, I could never live a life of faithfulness like Paul. But you absolutely can. You absolutely can because it brings us back to the title of our series and the theme of this book, doesn't it? Sufficiency in Christ. Is Christ's sacrifice to bring us new life sufficient for us to live a life of faithfulness? And we know that the answer is yes, intellectually. But have we experienced it? Are we pursuing the power of Christ in our new life? Are we focused on the mission that he's given us in that new life? This morning, we're going to look at four things that this passage shows us about living a life of faithfulness. So if you haven't already, you can take out your outline, either on paper here in the room or using the Brookwood Church app. And here's the first one. A life of faithfulness means allegiance to your purpose. Allegiance to your purpose. Are you living a mission-focused life? And now God may have given us all different callings, but we all have the same purpose. And it was in the verse that we just read. To reconcile the lost to a loving God. That is our purpose. Are you committed to that purpose? Because whatever your individual calling is, an an artist, a teacher, a builder, working in finance, whatever it is, your calling must funnel into your greater purpose of reaching the lost and the broken. And don't fall into the trap of believing, well, my work allows someone else to reach the lost. No, you reach the lost. You reach the broken. You make a difference in people's lives. You and me us together. So in the last chapter that we read, Paul shares this great mission that we have. And now Paul continues by explaining how we remain dedicated to that purpose. We continue where we left off last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. We live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us. And no one will find fault with our ministry. In everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. And and when Paul uses the word or the phrase true ministers, that's one word in Greek. He's not talking about a profession. He's talking about you, the body of Christ. It means servants to pursue being a servant. So we show that we are true ministers, true servants of Christ. In what? In some of the things that we do? In everything that we do. Every word that you speak, every interaction that you have, every glance that you give is as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Are you representing him well? 
do we have a greater allegiance to our purpose or to our comfort? Is our allegiance to our purpose or to our comfort? Because this culture is falling apart. There's more hate and division in this nation than there has ever been. And that is because we are further from God than we have ever been. And I'm talking about inside the church too. And the only hope, the only hope is for Christians to faithfully live every moment as true ministers of God and servants to the hurting. Last week, Perry said, the days of complacency are over. It's all hands on deck. And he's exactly right. Now is the time. This is the age. People are always looking for an excuse to ignore the call of God. People are always looking for an excuse to ignore the truth of God. And you know what the easiest out for them is? the inconsistent life of a Christian. That's the easiest out. Listen, everything you do matters. The way you interact with someone who you disagree with, it matters. The things that you post online matter. The way you drive matters. Your attitude matters. It all matters. Do you want to see a change in this nation? How many of you want to see a change in this nation? I can't hear you. Then listen, we have to stop treating Christianity like it's a part-time job that we get to punch in and out of. And we need to start seeking full-time employment in the identity of Jesus Christ. That's the only way change comes having an allegiance to that. That means dedicating ourselves to faithfulness and to prayer as we grow closer together. We have to become a people who pray and we have to become a people who grow together. Prayer is the only route to revival, not just in the nation, but in you, in me. Prayer is what leads to revival in me, and in our church, and in our community, and in our nation. So please, we, you already heard Gene talk about our prayer teams. Please go out to Ministry Spotlight. Join one of our prayer teams. We meet here on Sunday morning at 8.15. Come every Sunday. Come once a month. Just come when you can. But be part of this prayer movement. God wants to give you a life of fulfillment and joy and peace, but that only comes when you are willing to become what you were created to be. Because we're working against ourselves. We're fighting against who we were meant to be. But when we do that, and when we start discovering the joy of helping others discover Christ's hope, then we're transformed. But your allegiance can't be to two things at the same time. You have a purpose that is greater than yourself. And every action that you take, every action that you take, either moves you closer to fulfilling that purpose and calling, or it moves you closer to the world. You can't stay in the center. 
every action. And that leads us to our second fill-in. A life of faithfulness means acting in the spirit. Acting in the spirit. If you try to live every moment as an ambassador of Christ in your own power, you will fail every time. It's only when our actions are directed by the Holy Spirit that we have the integrity to represent Christ, regardless of the circumstances. But we'll have integrity. Look at everything that Paul faced, all that he had to endure, and all that we're asked to endure. Let's pick up in verse 4. I want you to get a sense of the enormity of what Paul has been facing. So I'm going to read 4 through 10, a big section, and then we'll break it down. Verse 4. In everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We have been beaten, been put in prison, we faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, and have gone without food. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, by the Holy Spirit within us, and by our sincere love. We faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and for the left hand for defense. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us, We are honest, but they call us imposters. We are ignored even though we are well known. We live close to death, but we're still alive. We have been beaten, but we've not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. That's a lot. It's a lot to endure, a lot of rejection, a lot of misunderstood motives. And if you look closely at these verses, Paul mentions pretty much every type of struggle that we could come against in our faith, right? Physical limitations, emotional limitations, spiritual attack, external threats physically, internal battles. But listen carefully. Every hardship, every hardship can be a testimony of Christ's victory if we allow the Spirit to direct us and transform us through the trial. Every hardship can be a testimony of Christ's victory if we allow the Spirit to direct us and transform us through it. Let's break that section down because that was a lot. Now, how many of you come from a Baptist background? Baptist background? You're going to love this because I have three sub points to my point. And Baptists love points. They're not in your notes, so I'm going to put them up on the screen so that you can all write them down. These verses show us three things. What does it look like when we're acting in the Spirit? We act in the Spirit with perseverance in trials, that's verses 4 and 5, with power from God, that's verses 6 and 7, 
and with the perspective of eternity. Verses 8 through 10. An eternal perspective. Perseverance, power, perspective. Look back at the first one, verse 4 and 5. It says Paul faced imprisonment and angry mobs and exhaustion and hunger and sleepless nights. Those are examples of persevering through trial. And endurance, perseverance, endurance, endurance is a theme that comes up again and again in the New Testament. Again and again, it's used to describe what the life of a follower of Christ should look like, endurance. When we are Christ-focused and purpose-driven, you can write that down, Christ-focused and purpose-driven, Scripture promises us that we will have the strength to not only endure suffering, but to thrive in suffering, to grow in suffering, to make a difference in suffering. Look at Romans chapter 5. We rejoice in our suffering. Do you rejoice in your suffering? Why? Because knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And when you have Christian character, you have an abundance of hope. Hope is what brings us through trials. The hope of eternity, the hope of knowing that there's a bigger plan and a bigger purpose. So we act in the spirit with perseverance. Then in verses 6 through 7, Paul explains how we do that through the power of God's Holy Spirit working in us. Let's put that verse back up there for a second. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, kindness, and the Holy Spirit within us, and by our sincere love. What does that list remind you of? Someone said it over here. Fruit of the Spirit. It's similar to the list of the fruit of the Spirit because these are the things that the Holy Spirit develops in us as we grow in Him. And we faithfully preach the truth so we're gospel-focused, gospel-centered. God's power is working in us, He said. Whose power? Not our power. God's power. And we use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack, like a sword, and in the left hand for defense, like a shield. But that doesn't mean we use our righteousness to attack people. What it means is that the best offense and the best defense in a broken, chaotic world is displaying Christian character. The way we make a difference in a broken, chaotic world is by displaying Christian character. And as we develop these traits, we represent Christ better because we are more like Christ. We're becoming more Christ-like as the Holy Spirit develops Christian character in our lives. What's the theological term for that? Sanctification, right over here, 20 Brookwood points. That's how we face the trials of this life and still fulfill the purpose God has for us. And when God begins to transform you, your view of the world will start to change. 
and the world's view of you will start to change. What was our third sum point? Who wrote it down? Yeah. We act in the spirit with the perspective of eternity. We have an eternal perspective. Look closely at verses 8 through 10. I asked our team to put it in bullet points on each line so that you can see. Do you see how each line feels like a paradox? Each line feels like a paradox, doesn't it? But Paul is describing the difference between an eternal perspective and a worldly perspective. People keep trying to kill us, but we're still alive. We have earthly heartbreak. Our hearts are broken. But through our eternal perspective, we have joy, complete joy all the time. We're poor, but we have riches to give away. We own nothing, but we have everything. When you have an eternal perspective, you will see the world and you will see your circumstances differently. And when you are living a life of faithfulness directed by the Holy Spirit, your life will look like a paradox to the rest of the world. Your whole life will seem a paradox to them. But it's that paradox that draws people to Jesus Christ. Because they'll say, how can he have so much joy when everything is falling apart? How, how does she have so much peace? She seems so at peace when everything here at the office, everybody is freaking out, but she has peace. And when they come to the end of their rope and they feel like they can't hold on anymore, who do you think they're going to come to? They're going to come to the person who they've seen face life with joy and hope and peace again and again and again. And they will come to you even if they don't know who the Spirit is because they see the Spirit in you. Responding to our circumstances with perseverance and perspective through the power of the Holy Spirit is our first witness as ambassadors of Christ. It's what they see first. But acting in the spirit goes beyond how we respond to our own circumstances. Acting in the spirit also means how we respond to other people's circumstances. It means that we have to have sincere and sacrificial love for others. A life of faith means affection and love for others. Affection and love, both. They're not actually the same thing. In verse 6 above, Paul says, we prove ourselves to a broken world by our sincere love. Who wants to guess which Greek word Paul is using for love? Agape. Well, you guys are good. That was like half of you. That was awesome. Yeah, agape. A pure unselfish, unconditional, Christ-like love for all people. The ultimate goal of a believer, the ultimate goal of a church, the ultimate goal of discipleship, what should be your ultimate goal is for every action that you take, every action that we take, 
to be guided by a deep, sincere love for God. Love for the church. Love for unbelievers. And love for those that you think are your enemy. And there's a whole bunch of cross-references in your outline that you can use to study that. Love has to be the motivation. If you want to be an effective ambassador for Christ, it can't be done with anti-government memes. It can't be done with clever barbs. It can't be done with the right political stance on vaccines. And listen, the truth is, those things don't make you ambassadors of Christ. They make you ambassadors of Satan. Because you're causing division in the church, in the nation, in the community. You're putting your desire to be right above the purpose that God has given you. So stop. Stop. Being an effective ambassador of Christ can only be accomplished through unselfish, unpolitical, agape love. That's the only way. Yes, with healthy boundaries among non-believers. Yes, without compromising the gospel, never compromise the gospel. Yes, we challenge and even discipline ungodly behavior in the church. But always motivated by sincere love, abiding love for others and rooted in the love of God. That's the agape love that Paul is talking about in verse 6. But when we get to verse 11, Paul is speaking directly to the church about affection. Verse 11. Oh, dear Corinthian friends, we have spoken honestly with you and our hearts are open to you. There's no lack of love on our part, but you're withheld, you've withheld your love for us. I'm asking you to respond as if you were my own children. Open your hearts to us. Make no mistake, Paul is taking an emotional risk here. He's declaring his love for them again, but he's also exposing how hurt he is by their abandonment of him. And the English loses some of the depth of that pain. And this translation says love twice, but most translations use the word affection. And I think that's so that it doesn't get confused with agape love in verse 6. But this Greek word that is love here, but is affection in most translation, is spanchnon. And it means this emotional affection that comes from deep within you. Having an emotional open heart of compassion towards someone else. See, Paul hasn't done anything to sever or damage their relationship. He tells them again and again how much he loves them, and even when he corrects them, he makes sure that they understand that his corrections come from a place of deep love and concern. But there are false teachers there who are angling for power, right? People are always angling for their own power, They're angling for there to be worldly pleasure in the church. 
And so they've been spreading rumors about Paul, that he's only using the Corinthians, that he's power hungry and manipulative and abusive and they should move away from him. Some were even saying that he was a cannibal. See, when you start showing sincere, unselfish love and you start truly doing God's work, people are going to come against you. And people will say the nastiest, most awful lies about you so that they can maintain power and they can maintain control. But Paul's not hurt by what the teachers are saying. He's not hurt by these false teachers. He's hurt by the response of his spiritual children. You don't have to raise your hands, but has anybody here ever had someone that they truly love abandon them, sever ties, walk away? Have you ever had a child or a parent or a brother or a sister reject you? walking and turning their back on you at the same time that they're turning their back on God and you see what it's doing in their life, but there's nothing that you can do about it. What does that do to you? It consumes you. It wounds you. That's what Paul is experiencing. But he opens up in vulnerability. They feel like his children because they are his children. And because his love and his affection for them comes from a deep experiential sense of God's love for him. God loves them through Paul. So you can't sincerely love others until you truly understand God's love for you. But once you grasp it, once, once you grasp the love of the Father that he has for you becomes part of who you are. Becomes your identity. And then you'll start sacrificially loving others, not because you remember to or you put a post-it on your refrigerator, but because it's who you are. Listen, how many people have heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people? Well, loved people love people. That's how the love of Christ infiltrates the darkness of this world. So you have to have both. We must have a spirit-led, agape love. A love that acts regardless of your emotions. But we should also have an affection and a compassion for the church and for the loss that comes from deep within our God-given emotions. A faithful life requires acts of love, that's a choice, and feelings of compassion, that's emotion. It requires both choice and feeling. The archaic definition of affection, now we think of it as you know, cuddling up by a fire. But that's not the, the archaic definition of affection was a deep emotional connection that changed someone else, that affected someone else. Affection. It has an effect. Do you want your life to have an effect on the lives of others? 
How many do? Then you have to seek a deeper understanding of God's love for you because the more you understand God's love for you, the more fully you can love others. So how do we get a deeper understanding of God's love? We do that by making sure our relationship with God is more important than our relationship with the world. A life of faithfulness means alignment with God. Alignment with God. Because none of the things that we've talked about this morning, none of them are possible. They're not even remotely possible if we're not in alignment with God, if we're not in deep relationship with God. If our relationship with other people, our personal goals, our circumstances, our business, if our relationships with that overshadow our relationship with God, or we're spending more time focused on that than we are on God, then those things become your God. That's why this next section of Paul's letter that we're about to read, it so desperately warns us about our relationship with the world. Verse 14. Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Yet we introduce idols into God's temple. Earlier we said that a faithful life will seem like a paradox to the world. And that's true. But if we claim to be a believer but remain tied to earthly desires, our life doesn't look like a paradox. It looks like hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. You cannot be aligned with God and the world at the same time. You can't be a partner with God and the world at the same time. Listen, we are called to be a beacon of light. We're called to be a beacon of light to those who are in danger of eternal shipwreck. But you can't tend the lighthouse if you're on the ship. We're called to be ambassadors of hope to this world, but not be in union with this world. Now, verse 14 that we just read says, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. That is what in the doctrinal world we call a dynamic equivalency translation or a thought-for-thought translation. It's not word-for-word. Who has a different translation that's closer to word-for-word, what it says? Yes, thank you. you. You just got 20 points. There's 20 more for you. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's it in the ESV. And truthfully, the NLT probably should not have changed that because it's a direct reference to the Old Testament. 
It's a reference to Deuteronomy 22.10 that says, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. There were two reasons for that. The first one is spiritual. It's that one animal is considered a clean animal and the other one is considered unclean. The second reason is a practical reason. That they have different gates and they pull differently. So they would be working against each other instead of working together. And those are the same two reasons that we're not supposed to be yoked to people in the world. And I know that these are unpopular truths. But if you are dating an unbeliever and you're a believer, you shouldn't be in that relationship. If you're already married, there's different instructions. But if you're starting a business and you're a believer, you shouldn't partner with an unbeliever. Because believers are supposed to have a different gait We're supposed to walk differently. And ultimately, you're going to be working against each other, pulling against each other. And I know some of you are thinking, Josh, you you just told us that we're supposed to love unbelievers. Aren't we supposed to be in their lives? Aren't we supposed to be in relationship with them as a witness? Absolutely. Absolutely we are. Yes, we love people in the world. Don't isolate from them. You care for them. You have true relationships of integrity with them. You share the hope of Jesus Christ with them, but you are not in union with them. And the way you tell the difference is this. You have to ask yourself, are my interactions with the world are my interactions with this person in alignment with God or are they just an excuse for me to take part in worldly pleasures? See, we we struggle. We struggle so much in our faith because we try to stay yoked to the world And and we're constantly pulling and struggling against the steps that God has asked us to take and the steps that the world is dragging us along in. We're yoked to the wrong thing. It becomes a constant strain, and in that strain, it causes anxiety and stress and low self-esteem and a general sense of failure. And you feel like a failure because all your work, all your plowing isn't producing a harvest. But when you're yoked to Jesus Christ when we're in step with God's will, then we begin to see fruit and we'll have peace. Look what Jesus said. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear. And the burden I'm going to give you is light. That doesn't mean there won't be struggles. But you'll be in step. You'll have fruit. You'll see a harvest in your life. 
We talk about becoming more holy. Well, holiness means being set apart. And God has set you apart. God has set you apart for a calling and a purpose. So stop fighting against it. That's how Paul endured all the things that we just read, all the suffering that he had to endure. Not by changing his circumstances, but by being yoked to a purpose greater than his circumstances. Your circumstances look completely different when you see the purpose behind it. When a farmer comes across a big rock in the field when he's plowing, he doesn't want to go through the suffering and the pain and the work of moving that rock. But he knows it's in the way of feeding his family, and that purpose is more important than the suffering he has to endure to move it so that his field will produce fruit. We can't be true ambassadors unless we're living a faithful life of allegiance to our purpose, continually acting through the Spirit, have an affection for the church, and a compassionate love for the lost. And I know that this isn't one of the feel-good passages. I know that that sounds hard. I know it sounds difficult. And some of you are thinking, I, I can't do that. I can't live like Paul. You absolutely can because Scripture says that you belong to God. You already have victory. And the spirit that lives in you is greater than the spirit that lives in the world. And look at the incredible promise that God makes when we invest in that. Back to verse 16. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. And I will be your father, not just your God, I'll be your father. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The God of creation, the one who hung the stars in the sky. He not only wants to walk with you, he wants to be part of you. He wants you to be part of him. He wants the world to know. He wants to shout to the world that you are his beloved, cherished child. He wants to fill your life with meaning and purpose and joy and hope. Maybe more miraculously, he wants to involve you in his plan to rescue other people. He wants to give you peace in the chaos of this world. So how do we respond to that? The last verse from this passage is 2 Corinthians 7, 1. We respond. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let's cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or our spirit and let us work toward complete holiness. Let's be set apart because we fear God. And not an unhealthy fear but a reverent understanding of his power, the same power that rose Christ from the dead, the same power that he uses to raise us out of our brokenness that we've been buried in to give us eternal life, that power. Have reverent respect for that power. 
So let's pursue lives of faithfulness together. Let's pray together. Let's build one another up and encourage one another because the only answer for the chaos outside these doors, the only hope to combat the negativity and hate in this world is the name of Jesus Christ and he is sending you. It's time for us to make a difference in our community. It's time for us to make a difference in our workplace. It's time to make a difference in our families and in this nation. The time is now. And just as Paul wrote, as God's partners, we beg you, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Let's go do it. Father God, we thank you that you are a God that does not leave us where we are. We thank you that you are a God of hope and regeneration. And I know that so many of us, all of us, can read these words and say, I am not living a faithfulness in my life that is this full. But I pray that you would remove the lies that we believe about ourselves, about the world, about you, so that we can see what you have already provided, the victory that you have already provided for us to live a life of faithfulness. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a desire for it, a thirst for it, an undeniable need for growth in you and make us a people that changes our community and our families and our lives and our nation. Lord, I beg you not to leave us where we are, but take us to the next place you want us to go, individually and as a church. And we all say together in one Christian voice, amen. Here's our memory verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. If we live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us, and no one will find fault with our ministry, in everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. At Brookwood, we want to help you pursue a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience a transformed life. One way you can do this is by getting connected at Brookwood. Please email us, connections at brookwoodchurch.org, or call 864-688-8326 to speak to someone on our connections team. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.